0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On the night of November 4th, 1995, over 100,000 people gathered in the Kings of Israel Square in Tel Aviv for a peace rally. Hundreds more watched from the roofs of surrounding buildings so many people turned out that the rally ended up starting a little bit late because extra time was needed to let everyone settle in. When Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin finally took the stage to speak, he must have been relieved at what he saw. Rabin had considered skipping the rally because he was worried there would be an embarrassingly low turnout. Instead, the crowd of people was enormous— And they were all there to show support for Rabin's plan for peace with the Palestinians. Maybe it was that relief that led the normally shy Rabin to join the crowd as they sang a popular peace anthem. Rabin fumbled with the lyrics, so he pulled a song sheet from his pocket to follow along. The crowd roared with appreciation. As the Prime Minister sang, a young man pushed his way through the crowd. He made his way to the side of the square, where cars belonging to Rabin and other officials were parked, and he blended in. Bodyguards assumed he was just another chauffeur. But they soon found out that was a deadly mistake. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, a murder that changed the course of history by destroying what may have been the last chance at peace in the Middle East. The Israeli-Palestinian dispute is one of the world's longest and most tragic conflicts. The bitter struggle, which has raged since the end of the Second World War, is a complicated mess. But at the heart of it is a question about territory. A sliver of land that extends down from the northeastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Christians, Jews, and Muslims all consider it the Holy Land— In 1947, the United Nations attempted to solve the dispute. At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations, has made its decision on Palestine. The United Nations voted to divide what was then called Palestine into two states, creating separate Jewish and Arab territories. Arab leaders wanted no part of it. But in 1948, Jewish leaders went ahead and declared Israel's independence— As a result, 700,000 Palestinians were forced or fled from their homes in a mass exodus known as the Al-Nakba, which is Arabic for the catastrophe. The displaced Palestinians moved to refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. Since then, their descendants have spent generations living in those same refugee camps. And today... Around one and a half million Palestinians remain inside the camps. Over the past 50 years, the Israeli-Palestinian dispute has continually flared into conflict, including multi-state wars, armed uprisings, and acts of terrorism. A major turning point was the 1967 Six-Day War. War in the Middle East... Israeli forces drive spearheads across the Sinai Peninsula, west to the Suez Canal, south to the entrance of the Gulf of Aqaba, breaking the blockade, capturing the west bank of the Jordan River, and occupying the old city of Jerusalem. The Six-Day War culminated with Israel's occupation of East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. After occupation, Israel went on to build Jewish settlements inside the occupied territories which further inflamed the situation and led to violent pushback by the Palestinians. First, there was the Palestine Liberation Organization, or PLO, which came to prominence after the Six-Day War. Their goal was to take back the occupied land, and under the leadership of Yasser Arafat, they attempted to do that through guerrilla warfare and terrorism. This is an ITN newsflash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. In 1972, an extremist offshoot of the PLO called Black September stormed an apartment and killed two members of the Israeli Olympic team and took nine others hostage. They demanded the release of 250 Palestinian prisoners being held in Israeli jails. The drama ended tragically with a shootout at the Munich airport. The nine Israeli hostages were killed, along with five terrorists and one West German policeman. Six years later, in 1978, the PLO was linked to another infamous attack that's known as the Coastal Road Massacre. It began on a Saturday afternoon, when 13 terrorists landed in a rubber dinghy on an Israeli beach. They made their way to a coastal roadway, Israel's main highway, and opened fire on passing vehicles, killing several people. The gunmen then hijacked two buses and took them to a Tel Aviv country club. All the passengers were transferred onto one bus, and following a wild shootout with Israeli soldiers and police, the bus was burned to a charred shell. 34 people died and 82 more were injured. In addition to guerrilla warfare by the PLO, the Palestinian people also fought back against occupation. Between 1987 and 1991, a Palestinian uprising known as the First Antifada erupted across the occupied territories. Here in North America, you might remember that the nightly news was filled with footage of young Palestinian men throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at Israeli targets. The response by Israeli police and military was swift and severe. On orders from Yitzhak Rabin, who was then defense minister, he instructed troops to break the bones of the stone-throwing Palestinian protesters. This, in turn, was met by even more intense violence by the Palestinians, who switched from rocks and Molotov cocktails to guns and grenades. It was a terrible and vicious conflict that resulted in thousands of deaths. It seemed like the violence might never end. But hope was on the horizon. In 1992, Yitzhak Rabin, a former military general with a hardline reputation, was elected prime minister of Israel. And he quickly moved to breathe new life into the stalled Middle East peace talks. After spending most of his life fighting the Palestinians, he felt the time had come to make peace with them. The idea seemed impossible. After decades of violence and animosity, how could the two sides ever bury the hatchet and agree to share the land? But Rabin was a man who seemed to accomplish whatever he set out to do. For several months, secret meetings between the Israelis and Palestinians were held in Oslo, Norway, And by September 1993, miraculously, an agreement was reached. The Palestinians would recognize the State of Israel, and the Israelis would recognize the PLO as the sole representative of the Palestinian people. Under the Oslo Accords, Israel would withdraw from Gaza and the West Bank, handing over day to day running of those territories to a newly created elected parliament called the Palestinian Authority. The Oslo Accords were really just the first step, though. If all went well, the interim agreement was supposed to be replaced by an even more comprehensive peace deal within five years. A signing ceremony for the Oslo Accords was held in Washington on September 13, 1993. Before a glittering crowd of 3,000 people on the White House lawn and a worldwide television audience of millions, two old enemies came together to recognize each other's right to exist. It can't be understated how incredibly important this moment was. It ranks up there with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the release of Nelson Mandela. It was a breathtaking sight. Yasser Arafat had been considered a terrorist for nearly 30 years. And now there he was in Washington making peace. You've probably seen the iconic photo of Rabin and Arafat shaking hands in front of U.S. President Bill Clinton. Clinton apparently had to coax the two men to shake hands with a gentle nudge. Check out the photo, or better yet, watch the video on YouTube. Arafat looks overjoyed. Rabin looks like he's grimacing. When Rabin addressed the assembled guests, he spoke of putting their painful past behind them. We, the soldiers who have returned from battle, stained with blood. We who have seen our relatives and friends killed before our eyes. We who have attended their funerals and cannot look into the eyes of of their parents. We, who have come from a land where parents buried their children, we who have fought against you, the Palestinians, we say to you today, in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears, enough! For their peace efforts, Rabin, Arafat, and Israeli Foreign Minister Shimon Peres were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994. But the peace agreement wasn't welcome news for everyone. In particular, it upset Arab hardliners, who didn't want to recognize Israel's right to exist under any circumstances. And it set off an unprecedented wave of terrorist attacks by Palestinian groups like Hamas. Hamas A majority of Israelis supported the deal, but to the surprise of some, it upset militant Jewish settlers and other right-wing extremists. They were vehemently against turning over the occupied settlements. In the weeks leading up to the peace rally in November 1995, Israeli extremists had ramped up their rhetoric at protests, promising to stop Israel from handing over the West Bank to the Palestinians. They called Rabin a Nazi, a traitor, and a murderer who needed to be stopped. The situation was further inflamed when three extremist rabbis from the West Bank issued a written opinion suggesting that it would be acceptable to kill Rabin on the grounds that he had betrayed the Jewish people. One of those opposed to the peace deal and Handover was 25-year-old Yigal Amir, the third-year law student grew up inside a large, ultra-Orthodox family. Frense Amir grew increasingly agitated as the Oslo process gathered steam. He was convinced that Rabin was selling out the Israelis, and in particular, the settlers. He organized rallies in the occupied territories to denounce the agreements, and he even tried to start his own militia. Amir blamed the prime minister for increasing violence by Palestinian extremists, and he spoke openly and often about the need for Rabin to be killed. Many of his friends and fellow students had heard him proclaim that he wanted to be the one to kill him. At least one person reported the young man to Israeli security forces, but they didn't take it too seriously. You see, at the time, Israeli security forces were more focused on Palestinian terrorism, and they spent very little effort monitoring Israeli extremists like Amir. Which seems more than a little baffling, because a year earlier, a Jewish resident of a West Bank settlement had walked into a mosque in Hebron and opened fire killing 29 worshipers. 125 others were wounded by Baruch Goldstein before he was tackled and beaten to death by survivors. Goldstein became a folk hero to many Israeli extremists, including Amir. Despite the threats and the opposition, Rabin pushed forward with the peace plan and he continued to make public appearances. On November 4, 1995, Rabin joined a bunch of other officials, invited guests, musicians, and journalists on stage for a peace rally at Kings of Israel Square in Tel Aviv. Security was tight. Spotlights scanned rooftops for snipers. Some nearby apartments had been searched. Residents had been forbidden to park in the area. And in the square itself, police were everywhere. The main fear among the security services was a Palestinian suicide bomber. That said, officials did suggest that Rabin wear a bulletproof vest. But the PM wanted nothing to do with it. He couldn't imagine that a fellow Jew in the crowd would try to shoot him. When Rabin took the stage, he told the cheering rally that Israelis were ready for peace, urging them to overcome their fears, let go of the past, and finally forge an accord with their neighbors. The emotional climax came when the veteran folk singer, Miri Aloni, performed her signature anthem, A Song for Peace. Sandwiched between Rabin and the other politicians, the singer beckoned the prime minister to join in, putting a microphone to his mouth. Reluctantly, he mumbled along in his deep, deep voice, reading the lyrics from a sheet of paper. When the song ended, Rabin folded up the sheet of music and put it in his breast pocket. He left the stage, descended a set of stairs, and began walking toward his car standing in the crowd near the car was Yigal Amir. Earlier that night, Amir had gone to a synagogue near his home in suburban Tel Aviv. He prayed that he would be able to kill the prime minister without injuring anyone else and that he would be able to avoid being killed himself. Amir then loaded his gun, a 9mm Beretta, with 10 hollow-point bullets, which can penetrate a bulletproof vest. He cocked the pistol and tucked it into the right side of his pants. Amir then boarded a bus and headed to the downtown peace rally. He removed his kippah, the skull cap worn by Orthodox Jews, to avoid attracting attention to himself. Amir worked his way through the crowd to the side of the square where the official cars were parked. He mingled with the government chauffeurs who were standing around idly smoking cigarettes as they waited for their passengers. Amir blended in with the group, positioning himself near Rabin's car. Bodyguards and drivers just assumed he was another driver. As Rabin made his way to his car, a grainy video captured what happened next. Drivers began moving to their vehicles, but Amir hung back, pulling the gun from his waistband and stepping from the crowd to fire three shots. As he fired and people reacted to the pop, pop, pop of the gun, Amir shouted, it's nothing, it's nothing, they aren't real bullets, they're fake. And this added to the confusion. But Rabin fell to the ground. He'd been hit by two hollow point bullets. One pierced his back below the clavicle, smashed through his rib cage and entered his right lung. The other entered his lower back, ruptured his spleen and then traveled up and to his left lung that bullet tore a hole in the printed copy of the peace anthem tucked in Rabin's breast pocket. The third bullet hit a bodyguard who grabbed the prime minister and threw him into the backseat of the car, laying him across the seat. The driver didn't immediately realize that Rabin was wounded. He asked Rabin if he was injured, and he responded yes, whispering that his back was in pain, then saying it's not too bad before passing out. The hospital was less than a kilometer away, but the route was blocked by thousands of supporters who were just leaving the rally. The driver was forced to take a different route. That was almost three times longer. And on the way, the Cadillac was stopped at a police roadblock where he spent precious moments talking his way through. But eventually, a police escort took them the rest of the way to the hospital. At the hospital, no one had been alerted to expect the shooting victim, and everyone was caught off guard. The driver, the wounded bodyguard and the police officer who provided the escort burst into the trauma ward carrying Rabin and shouting, the Prime Minister's been wounded, take care of him. Doctors rushed to Rabin but he was already unconscious and without a pulse. Doctors later said his wounds were so severe he only had a slim chance of survival from the moment he was hit. Rabin was pronounced dead at 11.02pm. He was 73 years old. Back at the scene of the shooting, police had handcuffed Amir on the ground within seconds of the attack. Then he was lifted to his feet and carried to a nearby wall. At least 15 officers pressed up against him, clutching his arms and patting him down. An officer asked, were the bullets real? Was Rabin the intended target? Amir said, yes, he intended to hit the prime minister. And yes, the bullets were real. On the ride to the station, Amir made a full confession. He was asked if he was aware his action would cause Rabin's death. He said not only was he aware, it was his objective. At the police station, Amir was calm and nonchalant. At one point, he even asked officers to take his skull cap from his pocket and put it on his head. A bit later, he told officers his watch had fallen off during his arrest, and he wondered if someone might be able to go back and get it for him. When word arrived at the station that Rabin had died on the operating table, an officer told Amir. The young man threw up his cuffed hands and declared, I did it. Then he asked for a glass of schnapps to toast the news. Outside the hospital, a spokesman for the Prime Minister broke the news to supporters that the Prime Minister was dead. They wailed in grief and cursed the right-wing extremists who had created a climate of hatred over Rabin's peace policies. In particular, they blamed Benjamin Netanyahu, the leader of the opposition party, who was a strong opponent to the peace accord with the Palestinians. Netanyahu spoke at two now infamous demonstrations where the crowd's slogans included Death to Rabin. Months earlier, in July 1995, Netanyahu walked at the head of a mock funeral procession featuring a fake black coffin. After Rabin was confirmed dead, an emergency cabinet meeting was held. An empty chair was draped in black, marking Rabin's place at the table. Foreign Affairs Minister Shimon Peres, who was dressed in the same suit and tie he'd worn on stage a few hours earlier at the peace rally, was appointed acting prime minister. His face pale and heavy, Perez kept his gaze down as he vowed to continue Rabin's mission to make peace with Israel's Arab neighbors. Fellow cabinet ministers bowed their heads as Perez said there was nothing else to do but to continue a great road to peace paved by a great leader. In his first major decision, Shimon Peres delayed the funeral of Yitzhak Rabin until November 6th, two days after the shooting. Under Jewish tradition, burials usually take place within 24 hours. But Peres decided to delay the funeral so that world leaders could attend. Guests at the funeral included Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and U.S. President Bill Clinton. Joining them were over 2,600 foreign dignitaries, including U.S. Senator Edward Kennedy. He sprinkled earth on Rabin's coffin that was taken from Arlington National Cemetery, where his brothers John and Robert are buried. PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat did not attend the funeral. His office said he decided not to go to avoid creating a political spectacle and security nightmare. The eulogy was performed by Rabin's successor and political rival, Shimon Peres. To the Arab leaders in attendance, Peres said, Peace is irreversible. There is no turning back. Not for us and not for you. U.S. President Bill Clinton spoke at the funeral as well. Now it falls to all of us who love peace and all of us who loved him to carry on the struggle to which he gave life and for which he gave his life. He cleared the path, and his spirit continues to light the way. The funeral was closed to the public, but the night before, approximately one million Israelis converged on the Israeli parliament building where Rabin's body lay in state. Mourners waited in line for hours to catch a glimpse of Rabin's simple pine coffin, which was draped in the blue and white Israeli flag. About two weeks after the shooting, police took Yigal Amir back to the scene of the crime. They wanted him to reenact what happened the night of the shooting. Amir was dressed in a bulletproof vest as he calmly showed police how he shot the Prime Minister. Officers videotaped the reenactment, and people passing by stopped to see what was going on. When they figured it out, they began yelling at Amir, calling him a murderer and a piece of garbage. At one point, Amir drew a fake gun from his waistband and pretended to fire three shots. He then calmly put the gun back in his pants. The crowd went crazy, yelling and cursing at the man who had killed their prime minister. Six weeks after the shooting, an amateur video of the actual shooting was released by the media. The dark, grainy video was purchased for $500,000 by Israel's Channel 2 TV station and the country's largest-selling newspaper. When it was broadcast on TV, the world was shocked to see just how close Amir had gotten to Rabin. It showed Amir standing around near the official cars. At one point, Shimon Peres walked past him. Then Rabin came down the stairs and walked within five feet of Amir. That's when Amir pulled out his gun and fired three shots. Watching the video, it seems like after the first shot, Rabin looks over his shoulder as if he heard someone calling his name. But then he quickly collapses out of sight of the camera. When Amir's trial began in January 1996, he backtracked on his earlier confession to police. He now said he didn't mean to kill Rabin. He only wanted to paralyze him to stop the peace process. And he said he had nothing personally against Rabin. A few days into the trial, Amir took over his own defense after one of his lawyers quit and the other was scolded by the judge for coming to court unprepared. Remember, Amir was a third-year law student at the time of the shooting. And he was able to match wits with expert witnesses and cross-examined his police interrogators. But still, the trial was chaotic. It continued until March 1996. Many key witnesses were disqualified while others failed to show up. And the judge was constantly shouting at the defense for making false claims. During closing arguments, defense lawyers sought a verdict of manslaughter. They said the fact that Amir shot Rabin in the back and not the head demonstrated that he didn't intend to kill the prime minister. But the prosecution asked for a verdict of premeditated murder with life imprisonment. The court agreed with the prosecution, and they found Amir guilty of premeditated murder, saying he meticulously planned the killing and calmly pulled the trigger. While the verdict was read, Amir briefly put a hand on his forehead, but showed no other emotion. He was sentenced to life in prison. Amir's 27-year-old brother and a friend were also found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder after they admitted to helping make the hollow-point bullets used to kill Rabin. The brother served 16 and a half years in jail. The friend served seven years. Following the assassination of Rabin, the peace process never really recovered. Shimon Perez, who vowed to move forward with peace plans, waited three months to call an election. But Perez was not as popular as Rabin. He was considered too far to the left for many Israelis, and he had a reputation as an unwavering peace dove and a dreamer, unlike Rabin's tough war hero image. After so many years of unrest, Israelis wanted security. So they voted for hardliner Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of the right-wing Likud party, who vowed to make Israel safe again. Netanyahu, the man who marched in a mock funeral procession for Rabin, remains Prime Minister of Israel to this day. In the years since Rabin's death, the situation in Israel has once again become a complicated and complex mess. Instead of moving toward peace, the region appears to be moving further and further away from it. Rabin was killed by a man determined to halt the Middle East peace process, and that's exactly what he did. According to the United States Institute of Peace, the gaps between the Israeli and the Palestinian positions are now wider than at any point since 1967. And they're approaching the point of being unbridgeable. Those two bullets and the actions of Yigal Amir in November 1995 altered the destiny of two nations. Thanks for listening to this look back at one of the many historical moments of the 90s. It truly was an unprecedented era of peacemaking. If this is something you're interested in knowing more about, make sure you go back and check out our earlier episodes on Nelson Mandela and German reunification. If you've got an idea for a show, I'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. You can also reach me through Twitter at 1990s History and on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you stream your audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.